A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by Tony Hodson from the Coach's Voice platform. I've also been to see one of our best young managers, Liam Manning of MK Dons. Firstly, though, the Premier League returns with the North London Derby on BT Sport on Saturday lunchtime. Beyond the usual tribal passions, it's a fascinating contrast in managerial styles. Arsenal go into the game top of the table. So, Aid, is this where we discover whether Arsenal are the real deal? <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope that Arsenal produce their A game, and if they do, then they'll win the game and they'll stay top of the league, which is which would please me personally. But I, in, in terms of are they the real deal... <sighs> They're not going to win the title. Spoiler alert, they're not going to win the title this season. Manchester City are are still a long way ahead of Arsenal, in my opinion. But the team are developing very, very nicely indeed. The tactical approach has definitely changed a little bit this season. We're seeing both fullbacks sort of invert, which is releasing the five most attacking players in the side to kind of go and do their thing and, and, and create a bit of chaos. And where before Mikel Arteta's approach could be a bit formulaic and a little bit predictable at times, now it's the opposite. It's very unpredictable. And I think, obviously, Gabriel Jesus has, has been the catalyst for that. But but tactically, the team have advanced so much across the last 12 months, particularly over this summer as well. So, yeah, they're improving rapidly. And there's a possibility they can finish second or third this season, in my opinion, which would represent great progress. What do you think, Tony, are the key areas of that team development that Adrian talked about there? You know, we've seen the obvious promise of, say, Martinelli. Fabio Vieira has made an impact. The summer signings seem to have been cohesive for a change. Where do you think they are? I tend to agree with Adrian, actually. They're not going to win the title. No one's going to win the title other than Man City, are they? But in terms of progress, it's really clear to see. I think if you look at the names, some of the names you've mentioned, Martinelli, has been a little short of a revelation since getting a clear run of football. It's easy to forget he's, only, he's still only 21. Odegaard, the captain, is a, is a clear first choice at 10. Saka is, is, you know, hasn't had the greatest start to the season, but there are signs recently that he's coming into a bit of form. Fabio Vieira, 
again, came in against Brentford. I thought the win against Brentford was very impressive. You know, a team that caused other teams plenty of problems. They were missing Zinchenko and Odegaard and they and they just, they won at a canter, really. So Vieira sits in, he can play as a 10 if Odegaard's not there. Is it against Brentford or he can play a bit further back? It looks actually it's interesting what you were saying about the summer signings. This looks to me for the first time like a clear Arteta team. I think there have been question marks over what exactly that looks like and there have been questions in his first couple of seasons about what the principles are, what the style of play is. And I think, if anything, it's the players who have left that probably define the progress of this team. Aubameyang, Lacazette, Torreira, David Luiz, William, Kalasinac, Chambers. The list is pretty endless of players who maybe didn't necessarily fit where Arteta saw this team going, all in one way or another symptomatic of why things hadn't progressed at Arsenal. But now I think, finally, Arteta has a team and a squad that he's happy with going forward. And there are signs of depth. People like... Kieran Tierney, not first choice at the moment. Vieira, we've discussed. Ben White, starting at right back, but can play centre-back if required. And of course, Gabriel Jesus has been the absolute star signing. Probably argument he could be signing of the season so far. His link play, finishing, threat, pace, strength. He's just been brilliant all over the pitch. So he's obviously somebody that would be missed desperately if he, if he missed any significant amount of time. And I think strength and depth is still a problem. But in terms of progress, I think it's fantastic. Arsenal fans should be pretty happy. Very happy, yeah. I, the two at both ends of the pitch, the two individuals that have elevated the team most are obviously Gabriel Jesus because he'll he'll come short and link play like Lacazette did, but he'll do it faster, a lot faster. He'll also make runs into the box. He's had an incredible amount of touches inside the opposition danger zone this season. So he is he's given us a greater penetration better speed to their attacks and with Saliba who's been just ridiculously good I have to say it's the recovery pace as well and um, it allows Arsenal to press with a little bit more conviction knowing that they've got Gabriel and Saliba back there who can cover any any balls that are played over the top and with also with Saliba he's a good passer a real progressive passer and Arteta's always banged on about being progressive you know and and, and and now he's got a back four of Zinchenko and White at full back and Gabriel and Saliba at centre half. All of them are really good passers, particularly knocking it into the midfield or even going from back to front with one pass. So, yeah, it's definitely falling into place, but they're not perfect and they mm. will lose games and they will slip up. They might even lose the North London derby, but, but they're definitely getting better. Mm. As I mentioned right at the start, it is a bit of a, a almost subtle contrast in managerial styles but one thing that does unite both Arteta and uh, Conte is the way that they've imposed their own culture on their respective clubs with Conte Tony you know switching the argument a little bit what has he done that makes you convinced that they are here for the duration well I think what you've just alluded to actually is his ability to impose his culture his style and his will not just on the squad but on the ownership we've talked about this before actually in some ways I'm not sure there's a huge amount of difference between Arteta and Conte perhaps stylistically perhaps on the pitch a little bit but off the pitch certainly not I mean Arteta actually just to talk about him for a quick second has been given probably longer than a lot of a lot of managers would be given at this level to show progress and I think the dividends are being seen for that now. The question mark about Arteta was what his style of play was, what his principle was, what his philosophy was. There's no doubt about that with Conte just because he's been around a lot longer. Less mystery about him and we know what we're getting with his teams. I guess one question mark that 
Spurs fans will want answered this season is his ability for Conte to manage a team that can have a run in the Champions League as well as challenging domestically, which he's never really done before. And actually, they weren't great away at, at Sporting in, in the last Champions League game before the break. But what we've got is a team fashioned in his image. They are incredibly strong through the middle. He's sorted out the back three, which is, of course, what he likes to play with. There are signs of improvement at wing-back. Basuma hasn't really hit the ground running yet, but Ben Tankur is, is, is looking the player that we thought he might be five, six years ago when he first broke through. And actually, Hoiberg's form has, has upped a little bit in a way that says, I'm not giving up my place anytime soon. Actually, the front line, the much vaunted front line, hasn't probably shone quite as much this, this, this season so far as it did towards the end of last season. I think Son's hat-trick against off the bench against Leicester will come as kind of welcome to, to a lot of Spurs fans. Richarlison definitely adds depth and a certain amount of personality and character, which I think Conte will like. And Kulusevski's, obviously Kate Kane's qualities are well known and Kulusevski's been a great success, although possibly also not his best yet. So there's still room for this team to improve. The fact they're unbeaten is probably just shows what kind of manager Conte is. He just gets results. But they've got a lot of games coming up both before the break and then afterwards. And it'll be really interesting to see how they manage to cope with the intensity of that run of fixtures while playing the kind of game that Conte likes to play. Yeah, but as as we've said already, the reality is that we can't see anyone stopping City. On that point, you know, they've got the other derby of the weekend on Sunday against United. You know, understandably, Aid, the focus has been on Haaland, who's just been ridiculous, really. But what about Kevin De Bruyne? Is it almost a case that we've almost become desensitised to his brilliance? He just does it every week, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He's playing as well now as he was in, in the nineteen twenty season where where he equalled the, the record number of assists in the Premier League season. And there is a pattern, actually, in, in regards to, to both the seasons that I've picked up on. And that's his desire, will, to make overlaps down the right and whip those unbelievable crosses. He, he is the best crosser, I think, in the Premier League, maybe in European football. He, he is absolutely dynamite, Kevin De Bruyne, in those positions. And when you've got somebody like Erling Haaland, who has the best movement of any striker, certainly of his age that I've seen in years, then it's some combination, isn't it? He's, he's crossing the ball an incredibly uh, high amount of times, Kevin De Bruyne at the moment. And, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you've got a guy as big as Haaland waiting in the box. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great combo. He's, he's reveling in it. I think having someone to aim for again is, is, has lifted his game, hasn't it? Before it was Aguero, I guess in that 1920 season. Now he's got another predator in there and uh, yeah, he looks in brilliant form and yeah, it's hard to see City, not winning the title pretty easily this season. I don't like to say that, but but they look head and shoulders above everybody else. They have their flaws. They're still not that amazing at the back, but but they they're so good going forward now that yeah, they're going to win a lot of games. They're also one one thing I would add to that is that, and you make the point correctly that De Bruyne probably looks at his best when he's overlapping down the right and whipping in crosses, not unlike Stephen Gerrard did in. In yes. Rafa Benitez's Liverpool team of yeah. back in the day. But actually, he's still starting. At the moment, Guardiola's chosen midfield three is Rodri behind De Bruyne and Gundogan. 
Mm. And actually, I think De Bruyne is better when he's pushed a bit wider and a bit more attacking. And I think City are better. And I suspect some City fans might agree with me. City are better when Bernardo Silva plays. When City won the title in the 18-19 season in that amazing race for Liverpool, Bernardo Silva was their best player. And for whatever reason, he didn't play so much in the 19-20 season. And again, when they came back and won it last season, he was brilliant. And I just think City are a better team and a more dangerous team when De Bruyne starts further forward and Bernardo Silva plays in that midfield role, which isn't what Guardiola is doing. Who am I to say to tell Pep Guardiola how to set his team up? But let's face it, they're not, they're not top. We're talking about them winning the title by a mile, but they're not top. Um, no. And they haven't played amazingly. Yet. Yeah, no, true. Yeah, I mean, there's a massive caveat there, isn't there? But it's not like they're... I mean, they are battering teams in some way, but, you know, they couldn't beat Villa, who are a team who are really struggling at the moment and, and question, with question marks over Gerrard that we might talk about a bit later. And Villa set up were really well organised and City struggled. So much as I also agree with you that City will win the league at a canter, I think there are questions about them this season so far that I think are being masked a little bit by the ridiculous impact that Haaland, who will score more goals than anybody by about double is having. <laughs> mm. Well, it's certainly an inauspicious time for United to go to the Etihad. Luke Shaw has come back from England duty, pretty much accepting that he's going to be in the limbo. Harry Maguire, I don't know what you feel, Aid, but I get really uncomfortable echoes of the Phil Jones experience here. Where you know, you've got two England internationals, World Cup squad players there with huge question marks against them at club level. Definitely. Yeah, in Harry Maguire's case, I think Gareth Southgate showing such unwavering faith in him over this international break, playing him in both games, has almost made the situation worse because his confidence was low anyway. And he hasn't come out of those experiences feeling better about himself. Maybe there's even more of a spotlight on him. So he's in a he's in a real problem position, Harry Maguire. And the truth is, unless Varane or Lissandro Martinez get injured between now and the World Cup, Harry Maguire is not going to play. And that is that's a huge issue for for Gareth Southgate, isn't it? I know that there are a lot of um, games in Europe that he could be involved in. Let, let, let's wait and see whether whether he is. I guess he he probably will. Maybe there's enough to get him through, but. From an England point of view, you've got to hope that he he finds some form in those Europa League games because if he doesn't, then I don't see how he can play him from the start of the World Cup. With Luke Shaw, it didn't seem to have dented his confidence, didn't it? I, th- I thought he he came out of it okay. Uh, he looked quite fresh uh, for England. He's lost his place at uh, Malaysia, who is obviously the manager's pick. And sometimes that happens. I don't think in Luke Shaw's case, he's been that bad to lose his place. It's just a case of the manager's brought a player in who he loves in his position. So I think that they are different and that Luke Shaw might be our best option or England's best option, I should say, for the World Cup. Mm. Other international fallout, Tony. Trent Alexander-Arnold. You know, that's someone who's, let's say, associated with Liverpool down the years. Um, what do you make of it all? You know, obviously he's treated, understandably enough, as a f- favourite son at Anfield. Yet Gareth Southgate couldn't be clearer, could he? I think he's given him, I think, is it five games in 31? What are the implications of that rejection, do you think, for Liverpool? Good question. The f- first point on it is, is in Trent's almost the the flip of Harry Maguire, isn't it? Southgate 
changing his position on player doesn't in either direction doesn't seem something Southgate does in a rush. So in the same way, we can't be surprised. We may not agree, but we can't be surprised that he keeps picking Maguire. We also shouldn't be surprised that he keeps not picking Trent Alexander-Arnold. I'm actually sure a vast number of Liverpool fans, potentially this one included, wouldn't be devastated if Alexander-Arnold had the month off during the World Cup. So much has been made of his defending this season. I'm not there. I'm not in the club. But to me, he looks exhausted. You know, we get words like discipline and desire have been trotted out about him. I've spoken to Pep Linder, spoken to Michael Beale, who worked with Trent back in the day. And the words that come out most often about him is discipline and desire, frankly, and just will to do well. He's also not the only Liverpool player who's looked exhausted so far this season. Van Dijk, Fabinho, Robertson, even Salah. No surprise, these are the players who have clocked up a lot of miles in the last four or five seasons. So there is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a challenge there for, for Klopp and the staff at Liverpool to get these players back in condition. All of them, I mean, Salah won't be going to the World Cup. Robertson won't be going to the World Cup, which I think is welcome news for him. For England, it's just clear. Like you say, Southgate doesn't really fancy Alexander-Arnold. You could argue that playing him as right wing-back would be perfect for him, actually, able to influence the game further forward with, with natural cover behind him. But he doesn't play it at club level, never has, and Reese James does and can. This England team under Southgate has been built on structure and organisation, keeping it tight and nicking one up front. Alexander-Arnold does not fit that template. So I'd actually, I mean, if he goes to the World Cup, I'm not entirely sure why. (laughs) He's not going to get played unless there's a number of injuries. No, Um, he's the wrong manager, isn't he, uh, Gareth Southgate, for a player like Trent Alexander-Arnold. He's such a cautious head coach. And for me, even though he's had great success, I think that this team is crying out for a bit of gay abandon, to be perfectly honest. We saw that, didn't we, in the second half against Germany. Even if we play cautiously, we we don't have a great defence. I think we have to play to our strengths and outscore the opposition. And if you play that approach, which Southgate won't, then Trent Alexander-Arnold has to feature. For me, he would have to play in the group games. The You know, England will dominate the ball in, in the World Cup group phase be inside the opposition half an, an awful lot and he is the best crosser from fullback in the division the stats show it no one's had more successful open play crosses than Trent Alexander-Arnold this season 12 he's made 13 chances which is the second most for Liverpool Liverpool got quite a lot of good creative players he's still made 13 chances in a bad season so I would not leave him at home I would take him and I'd either I'd start him in the group games I'd probably leave him out of the tough ones and have him as an option when you're chasing the game from a bench, when you need a goal. You know, what what a perfect substitute Alexander Arnold would be. Kane only needs one one good cross, and and he'd finished. And and I know who I'd want to be out there putting that cross in. Mm. Well, Liverpool resume at home to Brighton before a Champions League game against Rangers, where let's be honest, the noise will be turned up to eleven <laughs> on that one, won't it? Brighton, Tony, what should we expect from a Roberto De Zabi team? Well, he has a reputation for playing possession-based attacking football with Sassuolo and for, and for pressing high and with intensity when the situation allows. So it's also notable, actually, that in his time at Sassuolo, they produced quite a lot of Italian internationals, players like Manuel Locatelli, Domenico Berardi, even Gianluca Schamacher, who's now at, at West Ham, albeit hasn't had the, the, the greatest of starts. But that hints that you know, you don't get internationals from a relatively unfashionable club unless you're playing pretty fashionable football. You know, Burnley didn't get many players in the England team, did they, when Sean Dyche was taking them to seventh in the Premier League? 
and kind of as, as discussed a lot of times on this pod in, in relation to, to Graham Potter and the whole structure, Brighton are a smart club who don't do things on a whim. Deserby looks, at least on paper, a, a sensible appointment that offers a certain amount of continuity as Potter's there. That has to translate on the pitch. And of course, he's coming into a brand new squad. So you never quite know how that will gel. But it looks to me like they've replaced like for like and we'll, and we'll look to just crack on with Potter's work. And a, and a personal note from Jurgen Klopp, I think he'll be delighted to see the back of Potter. Well, even though he's, gone, he's still in the Premier League, he'll be delighted to see the back of him from Brighton because they've given Liverpool some real problems, even in defeat in recent seasons. This might be a good time to catch them for Liverpool. Hmm. Graham Potter takes Chelsea to a Palace aid. Any hints on how his team will play and who he will use? I noticed that they had a behind-closed-doors game during the break in which Ruben Loftus-Cheeks played in that Jorginho role. What will Potter's team look like? What's the Potter <laughs> DNA? Uh, it'll look different every week. <laughs> it'll look different every five minutes. I mean, he, he no one used more formations last season than Graham Potter. 18 were used across the board in the Premier League last season, 18 different shapes. He used 13 of them, um, which was remarkable, really. He was way ahead of any other coach. And often he would flip mid-game, which I admire, really, because he it, it's a sign of great of great coaching that his players can sort of seamlessly transition from one, one to the next. And I think he'll do something similar with Chelsea. What he loves... He's a versatile player. So Loftus-Cheek is kind of a dream player for a manager like Graham Potter because we have already seen him play almost every position, haven't we? I mean, apart from centre-half. I mean, Loftus-Cheek is, has played midfield. He's played number 10. He's played out wide. He's played up front. So, yeah, I think I think that, that he's a, he's going he's gonna to love working with Potter and Potter will love working with him. Obviously, in the first match in the Champions League that Potter took charge of, Sterling played as an attacking wing-back a la... Leandro Trossard at Brighton, who who was used in that position, even though he's effectively, you know, they're one of their best forwards. So, so yeah, the players are going to have to get used to being asked to do different things, and hopefully, from from Potter's point of view, they'll embrace it. Because um, if they if they rail against it, then he's in trouble, isn't he? From the word go, um, hopefully they won't. One thing I'd say about the formations, and, and you're right, is that you know Potter isn't some mad scientist. He just he just likes versatile players who can play different roles. You know, a four three three to a four two three one doesn't take much. Just one of the eights pushes forward to be a ten, and one of the one of the eights drops to be a double pivot. And then four three two one to three four two one is just wing backs pushing, it's full backs pushing forward, and a, and a pivot dropping into to build play. Like it's not like he's rewriting the complete rule book. All he's doing is just playing in a versatile way depending on the opposition, and he's training his players well to do it. Like it's just it's just good coaching. But yeah, I love the fact that we're talking about Sterling playing in the Trossard role. It just it just it shows <laughs> it just shows the brilliant influence that Potter has had, just showing a little bit of innovation. Um, I mean, Sterling was the best player, wasn't he, in that Salzburg game? Yeah, um, yeah. And it was interesting how picking up the ball a little bit deeper gave him a bit more room to use his pace and skill to really go at them. Um, mm. Ultimately, of course, they didn't win the game. And as as Adrian Corelli says, if they, if they continue to play well and not win games, which was also kind of the Brighton template for many years, mm. wasn't it? then he ain't going to last long. Well, yeah, how will he fare against XG at Chelsea? <laughs> <laughs> he does He does have better finishers on paper, doesn't he? So let's see. Yeah, he he'll definitely have been heartened by the goals that Havertz and Mount scored in midweek because they're two yes. players who both looked un, have both looked under par so far this season. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced Aubameyang's the answer, but at least yeah. he, he is an actual number nine, which nobody else at the club is. 
Yeah. Well, there were echoes of my recent conversation with Graham Potter in the chat with Liam Manning. Now, his journey as an unfulfilled player from part-time academy coach to football league manager uh, via the United States and Belgium is instructive. Welcome, Liam. Thanks for joining us. I want to bring you back to the age of 20. You're released by Ipswich. Not a unique experience across professional football because there's this huge drop-off from 17 to 20. How much did that experience inform your ambition, but also the way you do your job? I think a massive amount without realising it at the time. I think it's only as you, you get the beauty of hindsight and experience as you kind of go along your journey that I probably now reflect and I got a huge amount from the sort of the, the core values, the principles of play, the education I had at a terrific academy in Ipswich at the time. So yeah, a huge amount of that, the time I had at Ipswich as a, an academy player has definitely shaped a lot of the, you know, the ways I work now, you know, and just little bits. It was a the cliche of a family club, but it genuinely was in terms of I'm still in touch with some of the people there that, you know, I think if you're a good person, they still look out for you. So hugely fond of the time I had there. I mean, it's definitely, you know, shaped a large part of me now. Because mm, that's a, a moment of truth for so many people and many people just fade away from the game. What kept you in it? So it's really, it really difficult, to be fair. So when I left there, I knocked around having trials. I went to went up to Falkirk, I went to Dagenham and Redbridge, I went to Cambridge. But again, I think because of the education I had at Ipswich, it was a very, and this was early 2000s, where they obviously produced a lot of players. It was, it was a very clear style, and that didn't necessarily transfer too well in the lower leagues. So I knocked around on trials, found it really difficult in terms of mentally to kind of go from, I think I'm here, but actually in the big wide world, I'm not. So it was a real, real tough one. I went abroad then for a year and played in Iceland. It was a real tough one in terms of, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't what I was used to and what I'd had. So it took me a long time really to get my head around the fact that I'm not going to play the game how I want or at the level I want. So I could either keep knocking around in the lower leagues, jumping around, earning a few quid or, you know, kind of channel my energy into doing something else. And it, I'd say I'd stumbled across coaching. It wasn't something that I stopped playing, realised I wasn't good enough, I went, right, that's it. I think it was something that took me a bit of time to get my head around the fact that I wasn't going to have the career I wanted to. So I started playing semi-pro, actually, for Jason Dizel. Okay. Do you remember Jason? So really fond. I coached Andre at Ipswich for many years as well. But Jason, a few of the scholars I played with were playing semi-pro at Leiston and said, do you want to come and play? And to be fair, I absolutely loved it. It was a great time. And then at the same time, I think it comes back to the Ipswich element of why I work like I do person first. I think I got asked to come back in and coach because of the characteristics I shown as a youth team player. I was honest, hardworking, fully committed. I didn't fall short because of attitude or behaviours. It was just on quality ultimately. So I think that then led to me obviously being, you know, provided the opportunity to go back and start coaching. So you go into the academy and the thing that strikes me about, you know, there are more and more people actually emerging from an, an academy background in both the men's and the women's game. You know, as a coach in an academy, it's not a one-dimensional approach, is it? You've got to deal with the person, maybe at a very vulnerable time of their lives, as well as the player. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very difficult, I think, in terms of especially preparing them for what they're going to walk into. You know, the top end of the game is ruthless. The behaviours you need, the level you need, the pressure on it is so demanding that I think it's why it's, it's becoming in, in more increasingly difficult in the academy to prepare players for what they're going to walk into. And I think that's why I do think if you look at it, players are coming through later because of that. The pressures are so high, the demands are so high. 
So I think it then jumps back to as an academy coach for me, what, and this has evolved for me as I've kind of gone through my coaching journey, what the fundamentals I kind of want to put in that person I'm working with. And I think if, you know, I had a terrific experience in, in the journey I had at the academy, but I always kind of looked at it. If a player leaves us not being good enough, but has the behaviours to be a success in any walk of life, I've done a good job. Um, and that for me, still the same today with the guys we're working with is, can you get the behaviours of discipline, of focus, of you know, working with an intensity, owning your own development and understanding how you progress and get better? I think if you can put them core principles in the young people you're working with in the academy, then obviously adding the bits around it, they'll hopefully have a terrific experience if they don't make it, but you're also preparing them for the, you know, the behaviours they need if they do. How transferable are those qualities you know, up to the, you know, the senior pro level? Because... You know, you see some of those great principles and philosophies. You know, frankly, get lost in the mix. The higher up you go, is that a, a realistic view of things? I think so. I think uh, you know, fortunate enough to obviously seen a few at West Ham and being around it and seeing the first team there. I think in terms of, I even look now in League One, there's some terrific players physically, some terrific players across the board of the country technically. I think sometimes it is the the small margins for me psychologically that do separate the players. That you know, the the speed of thought which for me in, in, in what I look at is focus. We use the word focus, I'm sure concentration's another one that's used a lot, but I definitely think it is those behaviours, you know, being able to sustain intensity, being able to sustain discipline. And for me, discipline is if, if your manager's asking you or you're, you're challenging a player to do a job or this is your role within the team, have you got the discipline for 95 minutes to deliver it? And I think they're the bits that, you know, when I, when I think of some of the lads that I got to see and work with, they are the, the small margins that do separate, mm. definitely. Is football becoming a more cerebrally challenging game because frankly if you look at it now physically we're getting now to the basically the limits that you can get to yeah and even then it will still continually evolve you know if you look at 100 meter sprinting times over the last 100 years it's progressively got quicker so hey you wonder where it's going to be in another 20 30 years so they'll always evolve physically i think players but the biggest thing for me is kind of just trying to educate why players do things so I think that my, I see my job, we give them the structure, we give them the framework, we give them the principles of how we want to play, but because no game looks exactly the same, you know, and a team might press the same as another team, but the speed they do it at might be completely different marginally just because of the personnel that are playing. I think that they're the bits where if we try to work and I like the idea of trying to develop players to understand why they do the actions they do. So that then filters into our training programme. So we, we work really hard to put players in positions and situations where they get high repetition of the decisions that they'll make in a game. Mm. So we, we work hard on that then for me, and that's where the games evolve with the, the amount of video and analysis now. We spend a huge amount of time with the players individually, unit-based, collectively, to, to educate on the decisions. So the principles of the game have not changed at all. That's the one thing that I'm extremely clear on, is then how do we get the players to see the pictures quicker? Because ultimately that's what's happened with a game over time, is it's just sped up. What's the best form of education for a coach? Because to use your example, you went into the academy. It was a bit subsistence, wasn't it? Coaching, you know, you know two quid a player at you know the evening sessions, that type of stuff, which loads of people do. What is the best form of education? When and where do you learn the most? It's a tough one. It's probably different for what different people need in terms of their journeys, their upbringings, where their starting points are. I think it's it's hard to go. This is it. I think. Like my personal journey, I look at it and part of me feels really fortunate. I came in pre treble P, so I started coaching part-time in the academy in 2007, I think, 2006. So it was long before re treble P, so there actually wasn't that many full-time coaching jobs. And the beauty of it then and at Ipswich and having known that you know, Brian Klug and Tony Humes were in charge at the time was 
there's your 13s, get on with it on your own, <laughs> which is a lot harder to do now because of qualifications, because of the support systems, because of the volume of coaches. So being in at the deep end like that for me was great kind of learning in terms of I just had to try things. I copied sessions I did when I was a youth team player and kind of felt it whilst having support. So that, that was terrific learning, but then going abroad was also a completely different experience where I got huge bundles from that as well. Yeah, because is there a danger, and we'll, we'll go into your international experience if we could in, in a second, but is there a danger that coaches are, well, you know, you've got your laptop in front of you, they're laptop coaches rather than coaches who operate on the grass? There's a danger. I also think that the one thing that worried me, I think now in terms of just because the sheer volumes of job, jobs is uh, people wanting a fast track. You know, I mean, I, I think of the journey myself and the staff had. We, we joke around the two quid. I, I used to work in a school part time with supporting a kid who uh, basically deemed too violent for mainstream school. So my job was actually trying to reintegrate him into mainstream school, which again was another terrific learning experience that transfers into my coaching world. But I used to, before I did five nights a week at Ipswich in the academy development centres. So I, my coaching hours in terms of and the variety of people I working with was, was massive. So from eights up to 14s and then volunteering to watch the youth team. But I used to stop on a Friday to earn a few extra quid. I used to take a girls year 10, 11, and they turned up and paid two quid literally. <laughs> and that, that I had to do that because he didn't, there wasn't any, do you know what I mean, working hard to try and make ends meet type thing. So it was never about making money then, it was just around I enjoyed coaching. Mm. So I think that in terms of getting that vast experience of hours of feeling it, seeing it, is definitely, I think, core in terms of learning what coaching's about and seeing and progressing things. I definitely think there's a danger of the game's not prescriptive. And sometimes, you know, even now we'll, we'll put up animations and players will try and deliver the animation when actually going, well, that, that's not the picture in the game. So again, I think there's a real challenge for us as coaches to go that balance of prescribing information and what it will look like versus giving players ownership and understanding around how to problem solve and how to use their brains to think in game because it, ultimately when we do opposition work it's guesswork so the players have to see it and feel it and when there's 20,000 out there screaming and shouting I can't really affect too much to be totally honest it takes too long. You went on to West Ham the 23s there you're intermittently at least dealing with fringe first team players it's almost a bigger platform although it's to most people you know still pretty much cloaked in you know confusion in many ways because people don't really understand what goes on in those Premier League 2 or Premier League and the 23 games. What did you learn from that? Because you've, you've got a bigger platform with more diverse personalities to deal with, haven't you? Adults. Definitely. I, I remember, I, and it's not a, it wasn't a conventional, most people go 16s to 18s to 23s. I went from a Category 2 under-16 team at Ipswich to, I remember my first one of my first training sessions just before Slavin had been appointed. So Terry Wesley had appointed me was actually taking the, uh, I think it was the Europa League or one of the, mm -hmm. one of the European competitions. So I went from the Ipswich under-16s to my first week at West Ham, taking sessions with Diafra Sacco, James Tompkins, people that were established Premier League players. So it was, a, again, another one outside the comfort zone in at the deep end of, you know, you have to prove yourself there and then on the spot, which was, a, was terrific learning in there. But I think it was, a, it was a real big, the sheer size of the club, I didn't realise how big a club was that. I knew it was a big club, but not until you actually get through the doors, the size and the scale of it. But then also just the, the cultural aspect, you know, people in from you know, Suffolk compared to East London are, are completely different. So it was then in terms of understanding what transfers, how do I gain credibility, how do I prove myself, how do I, you know, get players to buy into me to a certain extent and why I deliver, whilst also adapting to who I was working with. I think there's the, a real fine line of the two. So you, you go then to New York City, you know, within that city group, 
that's an entirely different leadership role, isn't it? You know, you've got, I, I think I read somewhere, you have 42 different nationalities there, and you know, with the concurrent cultures that that represents. I've always been fascinated by talent ID for coaches. Who actually saw you? What did they see in you to give you that type of job? Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I think um, Brian Marwood played a part in it, definitely, in terms of Brian, obviously, um, through Dave Bowman, who I'd known at Ipswich under Mick McCarthy. So there was a, a connection there, but ultimately I, I interviewed for it. It wasn't a, there you go, there's a the role. I, I went through several stages of interview to get it. Claudia Reyna was a key part as well, who I met numerous times. So again, they have a structure and it changed. It actually changed as after I'd came in. So Dr. Kerry Bowley, who's now at Rangers, he became head of coach development for CFG. So it was just a bit after I'd came in. So I was just before him. But, but there's a huge emphasis on coach profiling. So, you know, what, and I know it happened here as well, but in terms of just tracking coaches around what they do, you know, record and player development, you know, playing styles in the teams they've worked with, you know, references of people within the game, you know, that, that, that carries obviously a huge amount of weight as well. So you went there and essentially in a head of coaching role. Did you miss getting your hands dirty? I still kept I made sure I still kept them very dirty to be fair in terms <laughs> of on the grass. So it was it was a I'd spent so many years, I can't the four years at West Ham, I'd done I'd done about eight years full time coaching and before that I'd worked seven days a week in schools, as I'd said, coaching in the evenings, etc. So the big thing for me going there was I'd I'd spent probably the best part of I don't know. 12 years of coaching where it was minimum two or three sessions a day, one or two games a week for 12 years, which over and over again is a huge amount of work and intensity and just sheer volume of demands of planning sessions, reviewing sessions, etc. So to actually step into that role, I, again, it was hindsight afterwards and the, the move to New York was purely development. I wanted to go there and make myself better as a, a coach, but also have a life experience, which again, I think... I can better myself as a person, it transfers into the game as well. So going out there and taking more of a, a leadership role to oversee, it actually allowed me to kind of step back and reflect on me, my philosophies, my way of working, and ultimately challenge a, a smaller group of staff. I think we had 20, 22 full-time staff in all departments across the academy versus 56 at West Ham. Can I then you know, take the really good stuff from the clubs and the journey I'd had so far and actually use some of the expertise from CFG to kind of mould the way we worked in the academy at New York. So it was a really good opportunity, I think, in terms of reflecting and kind of really reinforcing my philosophies. I'm an obsessive, I work like a lunatic in terms of I was doing five evenings a week on the grass. They looked at me like I was mad because the games are back to back on a Saturday and a Sunday. So you'd have like the 12s at 10 o'clock, the 13s would be at half 12 and then the 15s, for example, might be at three o'clock and I'd stay and I'd do all three games. So I'd be there literally the whole entire day. And the coaches were looking at me like I was crazy in terms of doing it. So although I directly didn't have a team, I was, I was constantly on the grass developing coaches as well as players. Mm. Yeah, one of the coaches I admire most uh, is John Wooden from basketball, American basketball. He came out with a quote which has stuck with me for years where he said, I do not consider winning the only goal in life. How do you react to a statement like that? Because the way you're talking... Maybe it is. No, no, I think it, uh, it depends what you define as winning. I think it depends what your personal objectives are in life in general to, in terms of, of what winning is for you as a person. It, some people it is literally just the three points on a Saturday for me. Uh, winning is also seeing, you know, a big part for me is, is actually seeing people progress and get better and improve and, you know, enhancing people's journeys in life. I think that ultimately is a, a way of winning for me, especially with a development background. 
see a lot of people talk around the success stories and players going on to make it. I have a huge number of success stories and you know, Alex Pike's one that jumps to mind that I worked with at West Ham who didn't pursue a career playing play when I loaned to Cheltenham but helped him get a job in the city because of his character and he's now uh, works in finance in London. So that for me is winning in terms of seeing someone go on and you know setting up their, their journey in life. Yeah, I mentioned a coach there that I admire hugely. Who have been your influences? I've got a few to be fair. I'm a John Wooden fan as well. I listened to a few of his bits around. One of my favourites is his practice moderation, which I, yeah. I try to as well. But um, in terms of people for me, role models, people, mentors that I've picked bits off, I think you know, Brian Kluge, which was probably one of the first in terms of seeing the game in a session and then being able to progress and take a session in a direction that gives them high repetition what they're going to. I think his eye in terms of how he sees the game was incredible. Steve Foley is another one who worked for many years at, at Norwich with Mike Walker and Nigel Worthington in terms of just connecting with people and players. I think he he was one that was massive in terms of creating an environment where players really want to come in and look forward to it and enjoy what they do, but also real clear boundaries. And then probably the other two, I think uh, Terry Wesley was massive for me at West Ham in terms of intensity, just crazy in terms of how we'd work, the hours that we do, we'd get back from a game at two in the morning and we'd be in at seven the next morning ready to go again. So. In terms of just sheer volume of work and the intensity you work at and the detail you go into, I got a lot of Terry and probably one of the final ones I'd say would be Peter Rivian, who spent many years at the FA and played a big part obviously in writing the modules and the new advanced youth award in terms of probably the biggest thing is teach why. Mm. <laughs> How do you, you know, design certain sessions to put players in positions where they're, they're using their brain and there's conditions that they're empowered to make decisions, but you're actually steering them and guiding them to the outcome that you want. Yeah, there is a obviously a business element to modern football. When you went to Lommel, essentially they were, they were going bust before the City Group bought them. You had six players registered. Where'd you start? Fortunately, they'd done a little bit before I came in. So they'd actually done a bit of recruitment before I came in. It was a really, I look back now and think, crikey, how did we do it? But I think when you're in it and you're living it, you just kind of roll with it and you, you, you adapt. And, you, and I think that's the biggest thing in terms of it moving you know clubs and moving countries is that ability to be adaptable and flexible and be clear what's important <coughs> and what transfers but what do I have to adapt and trade off from where I'm at and we, we just kind of again I was lucky I had an instant connection with the assistant and I had not met any of the staff or anybody before I'd been there so everybody was completely new to me I was the only English person for probably the best best part of six eight weeks before Daniel Grimshaw joined us from City um, but I was lucky, an instant connection with Peter van der Veen, who was the assistant, and Vladan Kujovic, who was the goalkeeping coach. And we just formed a really tight knit of every week. We tended to have new players turn in through the doors, but we kind of went, what's, what, what's the most important part? And that was culture. And we, everybody that came in, we sat down and we created a culture that we felt was really important to us. And no matter where you're from in the world, values are important to everybody. So it was, let's, let's build what we're doing off the values that we share as a group. Yeah, you've worked internationally, but being a little bit maybe one-dimensional, your first job in English football was always going to be definitive. What attracted you about this place, MK Dons? I think a few things. It was one I was excited. It was, it was a difficult decision, I think, um, but at the same point, it was one I was excited by in terms of, I think, numerous things. I think the impression I got when I, when I spoke with the chairman and with Liam Sweet and the sporting director was obviously was pivotal in terms of the, the senior people at the club I was going to come in and work for. I think on top of that then the playing style of the group and where they were currently at and the work that Russ had done and then the profile of the group, the age of the players, the age of the group, I thought it was a, a no-brainer in terms of the style aligned with 
huge elements of the style aligned with how I see the game and what's important for me in terms of producing a team to win matches. <coughs> but then also in terms of felt like I'd have impact with the players that were here. I was excited by a lot of the group and you know it was, it was a really young group which if I look at kind of my background and my you know my foundations, my knowledge base and you know history and development it felt like you know it was a, it was a really good fit. Had a great first season. You know, it's been difficult this season so far. Is adversity a great tutor? Yeah, definitely. I think so. What have you learned this year so far? Uh, I think we, we spoke a lot about it. We've had a huge amount of success last year and in terms of, used to say a lot around not getting too high, too low. But I think it's a lot easier not getting high than it is not getting too low. But I think that's where, again, it fall back on culture. I think what gets you through, what kept us grounded in, in the times when we, we you know, we did well was around humility, around integrity, around doing things properly. And the same as, I think it's not around coming in and being super emotional. I think you have to be emotionally invested in care, but I think it's also, we have a culture where everything's around getting better. Everything's around sticking together. Everything's around the values we have as people. Everything's around development. So that's the bit when, you know, we win a game, we're still looking at what we can do better. If we lose a game, I'm going to sit and I'm going to coach you and I'm going to treat you as a person and make you get better. Mm. Um, and that for me has been the, the big thing in terms of that we have to stick to. I think the bigger picture stuff, it was a huge transition in the summer. You know, when you look at the two windows, the, the players we'd sold in January and then the ones we sold in the in the summer, you know, when you look at how they've gone on and, you know, Matt O'Reilly's flying at Celtic, obviously, and Fish has played numerous championship games as of, obviously, you know, Twiney will do as well. So, you know, I think it, it's been a massive transition, which, again, I've learned a lot about. And I think that's the biggest thing that can be challenging when you're in it is how do you reflect, how do you take the learning from it? And I'm sure... I'll probably have that reinforced later down the line when I'm able to have time to kind of not not have 55 games to worry about and kind of get me head around in terms of what what were the main things I sucked out of that experience because it it's been it's been a massive transition for the club in the summer because mm. it is um you know obviously fast paced almost frantic game you know packing all those games in that you talked about it's also a reputational game look I know these things are outside your control but you do get mentioned when you know there's a job further up the food chain. How do you respond to that? And can you listen to that sort of noise? No, I, of course, it's, when it gets put out there, it's complimentary. But at the same point for me, it's, it's so much noise in the game with everything. It's, I've always kind of had, I've never chased anything. I've always kind of had the philosophy of head down, do a good job and opportunities arise when they arise. So I don't really, I'm not on social media, so I don't really hear too much of it, to be totally honest. The only what and our press officer tells me. To. So for me, I'm very much concentrate on my day-to-day, do the best job I can, and what will be, will be. Yeah. And it's a final question. Difficult to answer. I appreciate this one. Where are you going to be when you're 45? It's a good question. I've not... I'm thinking to, I'm thinking to the end of September, let alone in that far in advance. You've got eight games in October, so... Uh, for me, I, I'm not too... I'm not too worried about the end goal. I want to work at the highest level I can. I want to be the best coach I can. And, you know, I want to have a variety of experiences that I think will allow me to do that. So, uh, you know, I want to work at the highest level I can in England, but I also harbour ambition of working abroad again at some point in the future because hopefully my wife won't listen to this because <laughs> she had two international moves during COVID, which were quite stressful for her. So I, I want to work at the highest level I can. I think that that's probably the easiest answer for me. I want to be the best coach I can. I, I know I've got a huge amount to learn. I've still got bits to work on. I feel, you know, so a lot of the work we've done here has set us up to be in a good place for, you know, continually progressing our careers. Mm. Well, all the best for that future. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brett.
So, Tony, Academy Football, City Group internationally, then now working at a club with a track record of, of progressive coaches. Is Liam Manning's career almost the epitome of the modern coach? I think in some ways it is, Mike, yeah. As every coach, he, he has a relatively unique story. I mean, he played in... How many other coaches played in Iceland as a young man? then played semi-pro football, ended up at the West Ham Academy, then went to New York, Belgian second tier League One. It's it's a, it's a great story. But in terms of the themes, there are plenty of common ones with other managers that certainly that we've spoken to at Coach's Voice. Someone like Nathan Jones, for example, at Luton, went overseas as a young footballer, played in Spain, having not really made it where he wanted to here. Michael Beal worked at some high-profile academies then spent a year coaching in Brazil before returning to the UK. Uh, even someone like Ben Garner, who's now at um, Charlton, Kind of worked with those kind of that kind of in that kind of southeast London footballing hotbed that that Liam referred to in the interview when he went to West Ham. I, I talk about this a lot. I feel like I'd mention this every time you have me on. But at, at the heart of this is a head coach, Liam Manning, who's just turned thirty-seven, but has a wealth of experience behind him, coaching experience, more than a decade of coaching experience at different different levels. But I think clubs increasingly are finding that level of experience quite compelling, particularly when lined up against, say, a recent player who's retired at 36 and has had two years of coaching. Not all clubs. And I don't think, I think we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss recent former players. I think Mikel Arteta would be one who's proven in the last three years that he's somebody who can really kick on. But the likes of Liam Manning do now look genuine options in a way that maybe that hasn't always traditionally been the case. Again, ultimately, and he's not had the best start to the season at MK Dons compared to what happened last season, the results have to come because if they don't, patience will always wear thin. Yeah, I think he's pretty aware of that. He's a coach with very firm principles. Now, can those principles be sustained in senior football? And and what do you think is your impression of his style and his personality? Yeah, um, can they can they be sustained? I think yes, but you need the right players with the right mentality, and and probably the most important thing is you need a club that's willing to support you even when you get the odd set back here and there and, and you need those people to resist the temptation to move you on at the first sign of trouble, a la Watford and Rob <laughs> Edwards, Rob mm. Edwards, what's happened there? You know, he was the guy that was supposed to change the culture, bring in this, this, these principles, this, this different way of playing that, that would help the club in the long term, but, but it's been dispensed with ridiculously after 10, 10 games. It, it, it can work, but it has to be results base as well doesn't it to a degree as Tony says and uh, and last season he proved that he can do that because Russell Martin had a had a very clear philosophy of possession football you know really you know advanced at times it was it was sophisticated but it didn't translate into winning football often enough what Liam did last season was retain most of that most of those aspects but win more matches and obviously they got to the playoffs so so he's shown that that it can work the issue this season for me is that they've just lost too many good players in the summer and he hasn't been able to replace them with players that are of the same level. So I, I think he deserves a pass. But but yeah, I like, I like his style. Yeah, it's good to watch. I'm sure players really, really enjoy playing for him. And the thing that shines through with your chat with him, Mike, is, is just his intelligence. I mean, he speaks so clearly. He covers every base, you know, with analysis, player development, stuff on the grass, psychological work. It's it's all there. He ticks every box. And he's 37. That's a lot. It's a lot for a young coach to sort of think about and be on top of, but he seems at home with it. 
Of the young coaches coming through, and I'm thinking perhaps also here of former players, Tony, who has impressed you? Someone like Vincent Company, maybe? Yeah, I, I like Company. I mean, again, it's, it's really early days, and he, he's kind of he didn't have a brilliant time in Belgium, did he? But again, he talks with great clarity. There's a great confidence. He's one of those who so many coaches that we speak to, and we ask them about their first steps into coaching. And they often use the phrase that they felt like a, a coach on the pitch when they were playing. Particularly that comes from central midfielders and centre-backs. And I think company was obviously a very intelligent footballer. You know, Manchester City took a while to, to find that again, didn't they, with, with, with Ruben Diaz. So it's no surprise at all that he talks very intelligently and has a clarity of message. Obviously, he's trying to bring a new way of doing things to Burnley. I've watched them a little bit this season. They've looked good without being startling. And they're in a very competitive league. It'll be interesting to see how, how he goes this season and particularly whether if results don't come and they don't get into that promotion shakeup, whether he'll stay true to those principles. That's, that's, that's the big test of a coach when results aren't going perfectly. I'd be really interested to see. I'm, I'm not sure he's in a role at the moment. He, he left Real Sociedad B at the end of the 2021-22 season, but I'd be really interested to see Xavi Alonso's next move. Mm. I know he was in the UK playing in that, in that Legends game last weekend, still, still looked as fit as ever. I'd be really interested to see see what he, he did some good things with that team before they ultimately got relegated at the end of his last season. But again, obviously an intelligent footballer who looks to, he's had a good pedigree, has worked with the Real Madrid Academy team. So I'd be interested to see where he goes. Up in the Premier League, Arteta at the moment is going in the, in the right direction. Gerard and Lampard, the two other high-profile former midfielders up there are having trickier times for different reasons, I think. I think probably at the moment, there are more questions being asked of Gerard than there are Lampard. A lot of money's been spent at Villa and results and style of play isn't isn't quite yet there to see. Yeah, I you know I, I read your piece about Gary O'Neill's uh, impact at Bournemouth as excellent as ever. Right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, now, is it too early to say that he's turned them around? You know, I suspect it is, obviously. But but what lessons can be drawn in the way that he's gone in and done that job there? Well, he's he's shown that he's brave enough to make big decisions. He changed the goalkeeper, just like that. Just changed him, changed him. He's been working at the club as a coach. He knows he knows the, the individuals, but he made his call that, that you know, that, that Travers had to come out and, and Neto came in. He brought Philip Billing back in. He changed the formation and, and look, he's, he's kept a couple of clean sheets. Great turnaround tactically where he made a, a formation switch against Nottingham Forest. So he's kind of nailed the audition so far. He's proved that he's switched on tactically. But the bottom line is Bournemouth have, have a squad that's probably championship level. So if he or anyone else keeps them up this season, they'll have done an unbelievable job in my opinion. But, but I think this whether it's for the long term or whether this is all he gets, Gary O'Neill, I believe he's shown enough to suggest that he can be a manager. Yeah, I, I suspect he will uh, not be short of uh, suitors if he if he does get overlooked. Now, in a week in which Watford reverted to type, it was good to be reminded of the values that that club in particular appear to ignore. Emerging coaches like Liam Manning and Rob Edwards, for that matter, need patience, time and understanding. They need to be given due care and attention rather than being discarded on a whim. I'd like to thank Liam for his time and of course thanks to Tony and Adrian for their insights. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money. 